Um, I once heard of a uh, guy who was doing a presentation like I do, and he'd been given um, a certain number of minutes to speak, so he was told that he could speak for 25 minutes in this particular lecture, and then he needed to stop. And he went on for 25 minutes, and uh, he didn't stop. And people started to wave at him, and he took it as encouragement and carried on. (laughs) And he got to 35, 45 minutes, and then one of the young medical students at the back um, picked up a very, very um, heavy copy of Gray's Anatomy and hurled it at the lecturer at the front. Unfortunately, he missed, and he hit a guy who was sitting on the front row, back on the back of the head, bang like that. And as the man slipped into unconsciousness, he was heard to say, oh, hit me again, I can still hear him. So... Um, <laughs> Basically, um, I've taken away any heavy articles um, and I've made sure that the chairs are securely fixed to the floor. We're going to go into a little bit more um, depth this afternoon and I think some things that might rattle your cage or make you feel uncomfortably that you're resonating with what I'm saying. And they're said in love and they're said actually out of my own experience. So what I'm saying to you, I'm saying to myself... And the lessons I hope you learn, I'm still hoping I learn too. Um, The first thing that I want to look at is one of the issues that you guys raised this morning in our open session, which was conflict. Conflict is one of the most energy-draining episodes that you can have in any context. Any time there's conflict, antagonism, violence, verbal violence, disagreements, parting of ways... It takes a huge emotional toll on you. It drains away from your emotional uh, stamina and stability. And anger is actually something I don't think that we deal well with as Christians. I think that uh, we forget that it says in the scriptures, be angry but sin not. Uh, It's possible to be angry and holy at the same time. But we don't often get it right. Because often we allow our anger to kind of morph into other things. Um, Often we allow our anger to go cold and we start to gossip. Gossip is a sin that the scriptures speak against time and time again. There were three deacons having a conversation. Really they were having a confessional. The first deacon says, I have to confess that I have a, a real problem with the sin of dishonesty. I've been stealing from the church. The second deacon says, actually I have to confess I have a sin uh, of lust and I'm having an affair with someone in the church. And the third deacon says, I have a real problem with gossip and I can't wait for this meeting to end. <laughs> and basically... Basically, our our anger can cool and we can get into passive-aggressive nature. Let me talk about anger just for a few minutes and you may want to hang on to yourself as you you listen to this because I think it it will cause you to have some consideration. I think that we get angry at other leaders. We get angry at our leaders. We get angry at our leaders for a variety of reasons. They're not leading in the way we want. Their personality is not what we think it should be. Their ways of doing things are not what they should be. But instead of going up to our leaders and saying, you know what, Bob or whoever it is, I need to talk to you about this. There's an issue that's really irritating. There's something that's getting under my skin here. I need to talk to you about it. Instead of talking to them face to face, we go back to back. We start talking behind the scenes. We start gathering a tribe who are against our leader. We start gathering ammunition and allies so that we may actually really hit the person full force. 
We get angry at our leaders. Leaders get angry with their congregations. I've got angry at congregations because they wouldn't go fast enough. I have my vision. I have my plan. I have my commission from God. I know where I want to take my church in this city. I know where I want to grow this church. I know what I want to do. I know where we're going. And the congregation just will not go quick enough. And I get angry. And then I become a driver. I start to whip and coerce and harass my congregation to move faster than they're ready. Remember what I said this morning. If you harass people into going too fast, they don't feel safe. And when they don't feel safe, they'll come to a stationary standstill. They will refuse to go. They will refuse to go. So we get angry at our leaders. Our leaders get angry at our congregations. We get angry at ourselves. How often I've been angry. Why did I say that? Why did I do that? Why did I not do that? Now let me tell you something about anger. There's a correlation between unprocessed anger and depressive illness. Angry people are often angry because they've hit a point in their life where they can't change something and they feel impotent and immobilized so that they can't actually achieve what they want to achieve and then they go back in on themselves. So if you're in a relationship where you want something to change and it isn't changing and you're literally hitting your head against the wall, you're pushing and pushing but nothing's changing... You will go back on yourself and you can become very, very depressed. You can experience low moods. Interestingly enough, conflict, if you are in a conflict where you are traumatized by that conflict, if you've been shouted at or someone's been really aggressive with you, it takes your brain 45 minutes to be able to think clearly again. So you don't want someone making a strategic decision after they've been verbally attacked. So when I'm talking to nurses and doctors, I do not want them making a prescription. I do not want them operating on me. And if I'm in a plane, I do not want to be flown by a a pilot who's just had a drop-down, drag-out argument with his wife. Because it will affect their cognition. So anger is a really, really important thing to process. We can get angry at our kids. God forgive me, God forgive me. When I was in ministry, I sometimes saw my sick, my kids as an obstacle to my my ministry pathway. I sometimes saw them as an inconvenience. I sometimes saw their behaviour as actually a threat to my leadership credibility. I I found that actually I was getting more and more impatient with them. What I'd do is I'd be patient all day with my staff and my church. I'd come home and my little boy would do something wrong and I'd be all over him like a dirty shirt. I'd be all, all over him with anger. And sometimes the same with my wife. It wasn't my wife's fault. It was, it was someone in my congregation, someone in my organization that I was working with who was really, really getting up my nose, making me feel angry and frustrated. I go home and she gets the whole nine yards. She gets the full barrel load. The scriptures say this, deal with the flack before you hit the sack. Don't let, what's the verse? Don't let, deal with the flack before you hit the sack. I used to have a pastor friend who, whenever he had an argument with his wife, he'd buy her a pot plant. And I went in, it was like, I went in one Sunday night, it was like the botanical gardens. It was like Kew Gardens, okay? It was like, there was flowers and, and pot plants everywhere. 
But anger, unprocessed, will lead to mental health issues. It's toxic to your soul. I have had to go back and say to my kids, my boys, who are 31 and 29, Daddy is really, really sorry for the way he responded to you. When you needed me, I got angry at you. And it was because I was on a career pathway. I was going to be the leader of the biggest church in Canada. I was going to be the leader of this. I was going to do that. I was going to get my PhD. I was going to do this. I was going to do that. And I saw those guys as a holdback. God forgive me. So anger is a really important issue to deal with. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. If you're angry at your partner, don't go to sleep. You may lay there awake until three in the morning. Are you going to say sorry? Sorry. I just got to tell you, my wife's not here. But does any of your any of your wives snore? That is, she does the most irritating snore. Don't please don't. This has not been recorded, is it? Half you. She just goes. not a spiritual gift it's not a spiritual gift of puffing anger really important let's look at the next uh, pastors also expected they're expected to carry what I call toxic confidences you and I are told stuff confidentially that would make most people's toes curl I sometimes want to gouge my eyes out with a blunt spoon when I've listened to some of the stuff I have to listen to. And in my work in the hospital and as a one-to-one person supporting people psychologically, I hear a lot, I'm sorry I'm using the word crap a lot, but I'm going to use it again, a lot of crappy stuff. And what happens is if you're not really careful, you subliminate it, you push it down into your inner psyche, it's corrosive. What can you do with it? You can't go home and tell your wife, can you? Can you? No. You can't go and tell anyone. It's, it's confidential. So what do you deal with it? How do you deal with it? It's really important. So we hear the most personal, intimate, disturbing details from some congregations. Some people are telling me about their sex life. Some people are telling me about their sexual dysfunction. Some people are telling me about really, really disturbing stuff in their life. What do I do with it? It can just sit there. And your brain has got what I call a recall loop. Sometimes at the very most inappropriate moment, I get a loop and I can see stuff. So I'm looking at you guys and I'm getting a loop of stuff that I've heard. And it's really, really difficult. So often we're given in confidence, no opportunity for the past to offload this information to anyone else. It can sit there like toxic waste, slowly seep into your soul, sometimes wreaking havoc mentally, spiritually, emotionally. Mike, what do you do? What do you do? Sorry to jump on you. Yeah. He's never going to invite me again. No, no, this is okay. this is good. Uh, well, we we've always um, adopted precisely for that reason. We've always uh, adopted in the the teams I've worked with. Um, 
something we call stewardship of counsel. Yeah. So before anyone shares anything with us, the the, the kind of uh, unwritten foundation is I won't share anything you say to me with anyone who isn't either part of the problem or part of the solution. Okay. So we always protect ourselves from being entrapped. Okay. Now that works in a situation where, say, in a church, you can set those boundaries. But yeah. for many people who are here, who are perhaps in health professions or mm. teaching or government organisations where the culture is set for them, mm. they would end up with that. But because I've been in a situation where I can set my own yeah. strategy, uh, we've kind of had an escape chute for mm. that. Okay. Yeah. So, can you? How do you deal with the um, the stuff that you have to hear that's quite disturbing for you? You've talked this morning about you know your mind being unsettled. How do you deal with that stuff that unsettles you? Mm. Um, I, I would probably find someone I'd need to process that with mm. uh, in an appropriate way. Mm. Um, yeah. So, I, I, and I would get prayer. Absolutely. I would. I think prayer is is a great healer. Yeah. Um, but sometimes I need to just debrief in an appropriate context. Absolutely. It's really troubled me. Okay. Thank yeah. you. We do have the fact that we have a, a, a great high priest who understands, and we can talk to him, and we can offload onto him. I'm going to talk a little bit more about clinical supervision and mentoring in a few minutes, but it's so important that we have someone that we can actually offload to in in a confident and uh, confidential and safe place. So that's a really important thing to uh, to to think about in terms of your own mental health and your pastoral mental health. I just want to talk really briefly about something I feel really concerned about. I really believe that we should be sympathetic. I'm not convinced that we should be empathetic. You can take this up with me afterwards if you want. Empathetic means to suffer with or to feel the pain of somebody else. A sympathy means to come alongside and and support and be with somebody who's going through a a, a traumatic or difficult moment. The trouble is that if you and I are not very careful, we can actually start to imbibe other people's pain. And so the pain that the other person feels is then transferred onto us. And what happens is this, and and this is a kind of a graphic way of looking at it, and forgive me straight after lunch, but um, Mark has a pile of poo. Right, are you okay with that, Mark? Daniel. Daniel, sorry. Oh, you got your name wrong. (laughs) Daniel's got a pile of poo. All right, he's holding a pile of poo, and he actually is struggling under this pile of poo, and it's making him quite unpopular because he smells really bad. And he's walking around, and people are kind of parting like the Red Sea as he comes down the corridor. And what he wants to do is he wants to come and bring that poo, and he wants to dump it on somebody else so that he can be relieved of the pile of poo. So he comes to me as a counsellor or as a psychologist, and he goes... I need to talk to you. So he walks into my office with his pile of poo, which is not that great, but he does. And I sit there, and what he wants to do is he wants me to take that pile of poo and take it on me. Now imagine if I have ten Daniels through the day. My office is going to be full with poo, right? No one's going to want to come in it, and I'm not going to sit and work in it. But what I have to do is when I receive that, that pile of poo, what he's trying to do in psychological terms is he is trying to transfer his problem onto me. And if I'm willing to receive that problem, I'm going to take on a burden that I was not given to hold. Do you get that? Okay. I don't take his burden and make it my burden. I take his burden and make it his burden. 
casting my cares upon him because he cares about me. So I will not receive all Daniel's poo onto me. I will not accept the pain that you're experiencing so that it becomes my pain. Neither will I ever say when I'm I'm working with people, I understand how you feel. I never understand how you feel. I can imagine how you might feel, but I'm not you. I have not been through your history. I have not had your hurts. So I always say, I can imagine how you feel. I can imagine what that must feel like to go through that. But what I'm not going to do is relieve you of your poo and make it my poo. What I'm going to do, and even in the hospital I do this, is I will receive it, whatever the problem is, from the person, and then I will redirect it, casting my cares upon him, for he cares about me. I think that's a really important thing to remember. So compassion is more healthy than empathy. Um... Don't become a poop depository. Okay? Catchy title for a book. Don't become a poop depository. Avoid transference. It is not our job to experience and imbibe and carry other people's pain. If it is, it's only temporary and then we give it over to God. I don't know if you agree with me or not, but I think that's sound thinking. I think that all of us in ministry, and and certainly I do in my own work, we need a regular supervision. So every month I see a psychiatrist. I knew you are not surprised about that. (laughs) I see a psychiatrist not because I need to see a psychiatrist, but because they will listen to me and I will talk to them about the stuff that I've dealt with. Some things impact me greatly. There's something about trauma. Trauma is from a Greek word which means to puncture or pierce. I work with distressing situations every day in my work. I work with people who are dying every day in my work. I've been to 13 suicides. Interestingly, suicides are becoming a real issue. We're starting to train people in terms of suicide bereavement support. When someone commits suicide, at least 33 people around that person has to be helped. And the trouble is with suicide, the family who love that person are confused because they're angry at that person. Why did you do that? Why didn't you, why didn't you tell us? Out of the 13, all men. All men. Four to one ratio. Four men to every one woman. Men will use lethal force more than women. Most of the men, in fact, all of the men I've worked with have have died through hanging. So I've been with people who have been successful in their suicides and who have been partially successful but have actually had catastrophic damage to their brain. What do I do with that? One of the youngsters was 18 years old. And the reason that he did this was because he had an argument with his girlfriend. So he went off and hanged himself. And he didn't hang himself well. He hanged himself partially. And he's got catastrophic mental problems now and brain damage. What do I do when I go to someone who is dying? I go to someone who's dying on a regular basis. Nearly every day I'm with people who die. It doesn't affect me very much in the sense that I don't get upset and get really emotional every day. Although I always feel it. The other week, I went to some, a man who was dying. 
And you can tell when someone's dying because the extremities, if you hold their hands, the extremities start to go a bit colder and that works up their arms and their legs and their breathing rate changes and the, the, the kind of, the, the depth of their breathing changes and their eyes change and all those kind of things. And I was there with him. I was perfectly fine. The family were there. And then just as he died, a tear dropped, came from his eye and went down his cheek and I completely collapsed. There are things that will get through you and I's emotional, psychological armour when you least expect it. Why did that happen? Where did that come from? Interestingly, we need that supervision. I hope you have that in place. I, I have someone see me once a month. I also have a spiritual mentor, a spiritual director who I see on a regular basis to share what's going on in my life. Really, really important for that covering to happen. What are the causes of stress? One of the biggest causes of stress for me as a pastor, when I was a pastor for over 20 years, was that I lived my family life in the eye of the congregation. It was like being in a goldfish bowl. Everybody saw and knew everything about us. They knew if we had a new carpet. They knew, strangely, if my wife and I had a row. They knew if our kids were good. They knew what was going on all the time. We lived in the eye of the congregation. It's like a soap opera. Everyone knows your stuff. They even knew the stuff before I knew the stuff. They knew stuff that were happening in my house before I got home. Interestingly enough, you feel that sense of openness and vulnerability. You feel like everyone is looking at you and you feel that you've abandoned privacy. There are circles in life that are for me and not for you. There's a circle around me and my wife that only I'm allowed into. Certain parts of that circle are just for me and her, right? Do you agree? There are circles in my family that you are not allowed into. Do you agree? Because if you come into that circle, you are going to disrupt my relationship with my kids in their growing formative years. And I'm not letting you in that circle unless I say, come on in. All right? Do you understand that? So churches will take amazing, amazing uh, kind of... uh, Bizarre steps. One of my friends, Danny, his, his, his church, when he moved into it, he's a Baptist minister, they wanted to have the church office in one of the bedrooms of his house. And he said, do you think that I'm going to have the church secretary sitting in a church, in the, in the church office with my girl coming from the bathroom in a nightie? No. There needs to be those kind of circles of separation. Really, really important. Families are our absolutely our top priority as Christians. Do you really believe that, guys? Do you really, really believe that? Because I've been around the Christian church for a long time, and I think we've done a number on families. I really do. I really believe as leaders that it was really easy to do a number on our families. It's really easy to actually neglect them. I just want to talk to you a little bit about this. Well, actually, I want to show you something first. One of my favourite comedians. Let me do that. Oh, follow that, eh? I did hear some uh, parents say, oh, a couple were talking, and they were saying uh, over breakfast that, you know what, Um, we've decided that we, we, um, we don't like children, so we're not going to have any. And then in the evening they, and we're going to tell our kids, tonight over, over supper so it's, it's really really interesting I, 
it's also interesting, you know, I mean, people, we have these marriage guidance things, these marriage workshops, don't we? And they come up with, like, you must, you know, if you want to have a fresh marriage, make sure that you, make sure that you, um, you know, have a, a, a night each week, kind of when you get to go out. And my buddy, Dan, he says, yeah, we do that. He says, my wife goes out. It works really well. She said, she goes out on Tuesday. I go out on Thursday. <laughs> so uh, it's really, really interesting. But I think that ministry does bring an, an enormous strain on, on family. Let me read you this poem. It's by Adrian Plass. Um, this is kind of funny that hits you in the ear. Sunday is a funny day. It starts with lots of noise. Mummy rushes round with socks and Daddy shouts, You boys! Then Mummy says, Now don't blame them. You know you're just as bad. You've only just got out of bed. It really makes me mad. My Mummy is a Christian. My Daddy is as well. My Mummy says, Oh heavens! My daddy says, oh well. And when we get to church at last, it's really very strange because mum and dad stop arguing and suddenly they change. At church, my mum and dad are friends. They get on very well, but no one's gonna, no one knows they've had a row and I'm not gonna tell. People often come to them because they seem so nice. And mum and dad are very pleased to give them some advice. They tell them Christian freedom is worth an awful lot, but I don't know what freedom means if freedom's what they've got. Daddy loves the meetings. He's always at them all. He's learning how to understand the letters of St. Paul. But Mummy says, I'm stuck at home to lead my Christian life. It's just as well for blinking Paul, he didn't have a wife. I once heard my Mummy say she'd walk out of his life. I once heard Daddy say to her he'd picked a rotten wife. They really love each other. I think they really do. I think the people in the church would help them if they knew. I think that's so powerful, don't you? It really makes you think about what we are like. The greatest sermon, guys, you can ever preach is at home. It's really interesting in in 1 Kings where Elijah goes to the widow at Zarephath. You know that story? Zarephath in Hebrew means smelter a place where metal is purified. And where is Elijah purified? He's purified in a local home and a family. That's where you and I have to work it out. If our Christian faith is going to be real, it's going to be real there, right? It's going to be real with our kids. It's going to be real with our wife. It's going to be real in our family time. It's going to be a time where we feel that actually, like Elijah and that lady at Zarephath said, now I know that you are a man of God and the words of God are in your mouth. That's what I want to hear at home. I don't want to hear what a great preacher you are. I want to hear what a good dad you are. I want to hear what a good, what a good son to my mum I am and what a good husband to my wife I am. That's really, really important. Parenting has got to have been the hardest thing that I've ever done. Do you agree? I think parenting uh, raises guilt in me that nothing else can. Um, one of my friends said, if they're a good day as if they're all fed and no one's dead when you've had a good day, that's pretty good parenting. Um, if you've got teenagers, my advice is to buy a dog because you need someone who's going to be pleased to see you when you get home. <laughs> We've all reached the arsenic hour when we've had little kids. The arsenic hour is two o'clock in the morning. You can't get this kid to go to sleep. Do I give them the arsenic or do I take it myself? 
And we've felt like that, haven't we? Because parenting is the hardest thing to do, I think. But we have to do it in front of people. And that is so much of a challenge. I want to talk about something else that can really impact you um, as a pastor and as a person. And that is what kind of personality type you are. There's two main personality types that you can be. This is a bit of a kind of generalization, but let me put it simply. An extrovert is someone who is energized by being with people. Come on, let's get this party started. That's an extrovert, right? An introvert is someone who is drained by being with people. And it's a kind of um, a continuum between extrovertism and introvertism. No one is absolutely introvert or absolutely extrovert, otherwise you're bonkers, okay? So we're usually on this kind of tramway between being extroverted and introverted, and we will be different in different contexts. So I'm much more extroverted here than I am in other contexts, and I'm much more introverted in other contexts than I am here. Do you get that? But if you are an introvert, you are naturally drained by being with people, What are churches full of? They're full of people. And if you are introverted and you're a leader, you're going to find quite a big drainage there. How many of you would say that you would be more on the introverted spectrum than the extroverts? So let's go introverts. Are they brave enough to put their hands up? Yes. Introvertism is not the same as being shy, by the way. It's not the same. It's not the same psychology. So put them up again, introverts. Is it true that you get trained by being with people? Yeah. So you need a people detox, don't you, when you get home? You need to go in a dark room, you used to sit by yourself, and you don't want anybody to speak to you when you get home. You just want that period of quiet and recovery. By the way, let me just tell you guys that men and women have different reservoirs in terms of the amount of language that they, they have, the amount of words. Women have many more words in their reservoir than men do. So men use all their words up when they're at work, and when they get home, they can just grunt. And if you've got a teenage boy, they just... That means get me a sandwich out of the fridge. Okay? Introverts need recovery periods in order to keep going in ministry. So if you're an introverted person, you need to build into your schedule and your rhythm time when you can be people-free, away from people, By yourself, recovering. Really, really important thing to remember. Perfectionism. Um, Let me tell you that perfectionism is the surest way for you to get mentally ill. If you're a perfectionist, you are never ever going to be satisfied with yourself or other people. You will never hit the level that you want to hit. There's three sorts of um, perfectionism. Self-oriented perfectionism is where I set myself impossible standards and then I'm all over myself and full of guilt because I don't reach that standard. Socially um, oriented or prescribed perfectionism is where you guys set the standard and I never live up to your standards so I feel really bad because I can't live up to your wonderful standards and then there's other oriented perfectionism which is somebody who you will never please and you will never reach the standards that they want you to reach so for instance that would be someone who says this is super, I ask for super duper you're never going to please them and actually perfectionists have a real problem with shame They have a real problem with shame, and shame is not something that Christians need to have. 
There's a difference between shame and guilt. Guilt is over what I have done. Shame is over who I am. I'm guilty about the things I got wrong. I should never be ashamed of who I am. I am a child of God. I do not need to have that shame. So perfectionism can be quite dangerous. And this is the reason I think it is dangerous. See the kind of um, enlarged print at the bottom. A unhealthy perfectionist. I don't think there is a healthy perfectionism, by the way, and I'm going to speak about that in a minute. Values themselves by what they do, not who they are. So if they have a crap day, they feel that they're a crap person. All right? They judge themselves by what they do, not who they are. And that's a really dangerous thing to, to do. Okay then, what did Jesus mean when he said, be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect? This is my kick at it, and you can come back to me if you want to. The word perfect, leleos, can actually mean maturity or a settled sense of restfulness within myself. Who is the most settled in their sense of restfulness within themselves? God. God, right? So what Jesus is saying is work towards having that inner sense of restfulness that God has and make it a piece of your life. Learn how to rest in God. Learn how to be mature. Learn how not to fret and worry about whether things got done or not. Rest in that sense of who you are in Christ. So let's look at some of the consequences for some of these issues. Um, if you are running fast, if you are dealing with some of these stressors I've been talking about, you are likely soon to be running on an empty tank. And these are some of the things that might indicate that you're running on empty. You start to hydroplane. That means you start to skim over stuff that you shouldn't skim over. You give everything in your place of work... You leave it all on the floor at work or in ministry, and when you get home, you've got nothing left. You've got no emotional, um, no emotional or fuel to give. And so you'll start to overlook things that you shouldn't overlook. You'll start to overlook the fact that your teenage son or daughter is struggling. You'll start to overlook the fact that you should be there on homework nights sometimes to help them with their homework. You'll start to overlook the fact that you probably should turn up at their ball game or their soccer game or whatever they're involved in or go to their, uh, their play that they're in. You start to overlook that actually they're starting to get teenage anxiety. You start to overlook that your partner is struggling and you don't step in. Why? Because you've got too much on your plate. You've got nothing left to give at home. So you start to hydroplane. You can feel overwhelmed. Overwhelmed is feeling like you're drowning. It's where you feel that you're going under for the third time. You cannot keep going. You're starting to sink. You can go into burnout. If you are going through these things, you will not be sleeping well and you will lack energy. How many of you are walking around with continuous fatigue syndrome? That means you're tired all the time. You get up in the morning, you're tired. The reason that you do that is because when you sleep at night, the things that weren't resolved in the daytime, your brain continues to work on, so your brain is using energy through the night and you wake up tired. So if there's unresolved stuff going on in your life, when you go to sleep, your brain continues to work on it because it likes everything to be sorted. And in the morning, your brain has used lots of energy and you get up and you feel like your legs are lead. Lack of patience. 
That, again, as I said this morning, is a sure sign that you're running on empty, that you're moving towards burnout. You get crabby, you get aggressive, you get angry, you get short, you get snappy. Lack of motivation. Why am I doing this? Why am I doing this to myself? Emotions all over the place. That means you could be crying, you could be laughing hysterically, you could have psychosomatic illnesses, headaches, dizziness, stomach um, aches. Um, You might well be suffering from some kind of uh, gastrointestinal problem. There's an exponential rise in gastrointestinal problems because it's linked to anxiety. The biggest organ in your body is your gut and it's the most sensitive to stress. So when you get stressed, your gut goes AWOL and your stomach will be upset. You'll need to go to the toilet. You'll feel bloated. You'll feel all those things that are really uncomfortable. You'll dread getting up in the morning. You want to shoot the sparrows in the, cor- in, the, uh, in the dawn chorus because they're waking you to another day that you don't want to face. You'll experience that burnout of too much energy passing through you. Sometimes we allow ourselves to take on board too much energy and the energy overwhelms us as, a, as an entity. And these are some of the um, symptoms, again, of burnout. You start to get really negative and critical. Let me tell you this, and I think it's really important. When a relationship, be it a work relationship or a home relationship, is starting to go wrong, you begin to be able to think of all the negative things about the other people or the other person. And it becomes critical and it becomes negative. So that's a sign of, uh, of burnout. Uh, dreading going to work, low energy, trouble sleeping, absent from work a lot, feelings of emptiness, physical complaints, easily irritated, uh, work having no meaning, pulling away from people emotionally. You do that to keep yourself safe. Feeling that nobody actually recognizes all the hard work you put in. Nobody loves me. Everybody hates me. I think I'll go and eat worms. Long things, squiggly ones, short, fat, curly ones. See how they wiggle and squirm, bite their heads off. Nobody knows how I survive on worms three times a day. Um, Blaming others for your mistakes, uh, wanting to quit. How many pastors and leaders have wanted to quit? At least once. Burnout takes uh, a long time. It doesn't just happen in over short time. These are some of the causes of burnout, feeling that your life is out of control. Too many commitments and too little time. Cannot meet the expectations of the people you're working with. Feeling trapped or overwhelmed. Feeling that lack of support. Feeling that um, you've lost direction and purpose. Forgive the spelling mistake. Feeling that work is repetitive and relentless. Inability to relax and recover. Inability to get therapeutic sleep. Deep down fatigue. All of these things are really there when you're burning out. I do believe that pastoral work work should stretch us, but I don't think it should stretch us into stress and uh, and, and distress us. Okay, let's just have a look at this. I want to have a time of um, ministry now, if that's okay. Can we play this? I want you to listen to it. Um, the other day in my office at the hospital, I had that on continuous loop, trying to hear what God is saying to me. And he is definitely saying to me, slow down. Um, there's proof positive in terms of psychological empirical evidence and research 
that the faster that we go in terms of the pace of our life, the more likely we are to miss the things that we should be attending to. We're we're likely to miss hearing the things we should hear. And we're likely to end up being very, very anxious and wrung out because we're going faster than we should have done. I'm going to have a time of prayer in a minute, a time of ministry, so any of you guys who want to come up and share uh, in prayer, you're really welcome to. But let me just say this before we do that. I don't know how many of you like bagpipes. How many like bagpipes? Yeah, 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 okay. Um, bagpipes are interesting, an uh, interesting thing. You know that the, um, the Irish gave them to the Scots, but the Scots never got the joke. But, um, the, and you know, and you, and you know, and you know, don't you, that, um, they're a weapon of war. They're meant to frighten the whatevers out of people as you come towards them with these bagpipes. There was a, a man playing bagpipes once. And he was playing away and this little girl goes up to the man playing bagpipes and she says, Sir, if you would let those things go, I'm sure they'd stop screaming at you. (laughs) And I think, I believe this afternoon that God has spoken to some of you and said, if you let that thing go, guy, it will stop screaming at you. Maybe you're hurried. Maybe you're rushing. Maybe you're struggling in the area of family. Maybe you're struggling in the area of relationships. What do you do if your relationship with your husband and wife starts to go wrong in ministry? Really tricky, isn't it? Where do you go? Who can you speak to? Where will you be safe? I honestly think that what God is saying to us, with all your vision and with all the dynamism that you've got, is that that will come out of a restful place with God. A slowing down in the core of who you are, even if you're going faster on the outside, there needs to be that core of slowness to be still, to be attentive to God, and to hear what God is saying. Just think about Elijah on the mountain after his depression. It wasn't in the earthquake, it wasn't in the wind, it wasn't in the fire, it was in the small still voice the Hebrew for that is literally a puff of wind how would you and I hear a puff of wind, the voice of God if we're running at a hundred miles an hour, if we're cluttered with too many things to do if we've taken so much on board that our balloon is sinking and we need to throw ballast out the side to keep us afloat I think God wants to do something with this. I think there's an area where we just say, Lord, this is me, this is where I'm at. This is what I'm struggling with. But I need to bring it to you. There's a really interesting Greek word, and those of you who know Greek will know it. Aphiemi. Aphiemi means to forgive. It's the word we use for forgive. It literally means to let go of. To let go of. And almost symbolically, I'm going to say to you, Instead of having your hand like this, I'm going to ask you either literally or internally to go, I'm going to let go of that thing, Lord. I'm going to let go of that thing because actually in pursuing that thing, it's destroying my life. I'm, I'm too rushed. I'm too overburdened. I'm right filled up to here. I'm this close to overflow. I really need you to help at this point in my life. Don't 
copy society. Society is accelerating and accelerating and accelerating. We are an alternative way. We're the upside down kingdom. To go faster, we go slower. Right? We've got a different work ethic. We've got a different appreciation of what we actually do and who we're doing it for. We're already forgiven, accepted and loved. We don't have to earn that with God. The harder you work makes no difference in your relationship with God. All it makes a difference is is in your relationship with you and the people you love. I don't know... I'm not experienced enough in all this stuff, but whether Daniel want to come up the front or Mike and, we'll, and maybe the band, I don't mind what we do. But let's have some time of prayer. If you want to come forward and share and, and we can pray for you, we can do that. Do you feel comfortable doing that? Okay, let's go for it.